to Diffuse Congruence. It is episode 96 of the American Muslim Experience, and I am here with my co-host, Omar Ansari. Hey, Salaikum, everybody. Salaikum, Salaam. How are you, Omar? How's it going, man? How, how are things hanging in, in Washington State? <laughs> things are good. It's been a while since uh, since we've we've chatted, really, uh, other than the show. So it's, we're, def- <laughs> we're definitely due, to, due for catching up. But things are good. I'm up here in uh, Spokane, uh, yeah, our, our, our listeners don't realize like like this show affords us uh, not only an opportunity to talk to our guests, but it also gives us a chance to for you and I to catch up. So, <laughs> that's right. Forcing, it's a forcing being, function. No. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Especially <laughs> not being um, local anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah, um, yeah, still up here in Spokane for the pretty much the rest of the summer while the hopefully the contractors finish the house on, housework. Uh, That's right. You've mentioned, on, you've mentioned on the show before, you're, you've got some renovations going on, uh, pretty extensive. And so you and the family are with your folks in, uh, in Washington. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, uh, you know, enjoying the, the, the quarantine uh, with, with the folks, which is kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. How are you mean, doing? I guess, I guess now with the, well, I mean, now with schools sort of indefinitely, you know, starting in the fall with kind of an indefinite uh, remote, uh, what is it, distant learning kind of approach. Uh, I guess there's no need for you to be local uh, until the house is done. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, it kind of worked out. I mean, the kids are missing school, and my my wife definitely wants to be uh, back in the house as soon as it's done. But but it kind of worked out in the sense that, you know, the contractor gets to do his thing, and I get to spend some time with my parents. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, Speaking of your folks, I mean, I I think we've mentioned this on the show. Your dad is a professor at Gonzaga. Um, How's that going for him, like uh, this whole distant learning thing that he's got to do and learn? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's he's trying to learn Zoom. He's trying to learn Zoom. I told him don't don't be uh don't be uh, uh you know discouraged because uh, you moved from a you moved from a blackboard to a whiteboard in the eighties and you can you can move from a, a whiteboard to Zoom now. That's a good one, man. He's having to learn one more skill. Um, yeah. So uh, no, uh, yeah, everything's great here. Uh, we had a we had a wonderful conversation last time with uh, Mahmoud of the Rove. I know it was certainly a wish list item for you and for mm-hmm. me um you know i i think in hindsight or just kind of the way the conversation ended or um we uh there, there, were, there were certain things that i really wanted to spend more time on which we weren't able to and uh conversely and i guess more of a positive thing we spent things we we spent a lot of time on things that i think either he hasn't discussed previously at least in interviews and things that i've heard which is a lot of his sort of early childhood, his struggles with uh, with, with Tourette's early on, and uh, yes, <laughs> sorry, that was my uh, adhan uh, going off on my app. So, uh, time? oh yeah, it's usher time almost. We're, we're recording <laughs> on a Monday afternoon, uh, but yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, well, I mean, I don't know what what, what did you think? I, I know for you, he was way more of a kind of a bu- like bucket list item than for myself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we could have talked to him for for hours and hours. I'd love to have him back. Um, I'm interested in. I'm going to be interested in hearing uh, or reading the book that he teased, right? His autobiography. 
that's one of those things. I mean, we're, we're I think it's one of those episodes where we're we're gonna always want more time, um, and there's only so much time you can get with these guys who are super busy. But it was cool. It was fun. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, well, we are super excited and delighted uh, to be joined this episode uh, with uh, Professor Mohammed Fadl, who is a professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Um, he wrote his. Uh, I'm sorry. He received his PhD. Uh, in Islamic Studies with a focus on Medieval Islamic Law at the University of Chicago, uh, and also received his uh, law degree, his JD, from the University of Virginia. Uh, Professor Fadl was admitted to practice um, in the state of New York, and he practiced law with the uh, very prestigious firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, where he focused his practice on corporate finance transactions and securities-related regulatory investigations. Um, I've been wanting to have Professor Fadl back on the show. We had him early on, um, I think, somewhere in our 30s, I think. It was, it was actually, I actually went back and listened to it uh, last week. It was um, February 26, 2016, so early in the last election cycle. It was, actually <laughs> a, it was actually a really, really interesting episode to go back, uh, having now where we are, right? And right. I'm, really, I'm really looking forward to kind of picking up that discussion, yeah, the 2020 so version. I agree, and and we can certainly pick up the conversation. You know, we, we certainly want to pick up the conversation talking about the uh, upcoming election now, four years later. But uh, uh, more importantly, and I guess from my kind of legal eagle kind of uh, brain, uh, I really wanted to pick Dr. Fadel's brain about um, um, his thoughts on some of the more recent Supreme Court decisions that came out uh, of this session that just ended. Um, uh, back in July. So um, anyway, um, we are really de delighted to have Professor Vogel on. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, let's do it. Bismillah. All right. Welcome, Professor Fadl. Uh, really happy to have you on. Um, I know you've been on the show in the past, uh, prior to when I joined, when we had a different co-host, but I did over the weekend uh, pull up that episode. I think it was episode 33 or 34 from uh, summer 2016, and I listened to it just to kind of catch up and hear a little about uh, your your background and your points of view. It was, it was, a, it was super interesting. Uh, kind of got me thinking of of all the craziness that's that's happened since 2016, right? Uh, life has been crazy in general since maybe 9/11, you could say. But uh, we've kicked it into high gear since the Trump election, and and now, of course, everything that's going out going on with the virus at a macro level. But uh, it's like I said, it's been a crazy year, and you explained the rise of Trump through economics, uh, and that really that really resonated with me. You were talking about how things have gotten global and whatnot, and because there's more supply and demand, you talked about more 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 supply of workers, maybe flat or left or, or or lower demand of of of, uh, of jobs and, and capital potentially for the for the lower class. Um, things have only gotten worse, right? So. Do you see? Do you see that that pattern continuing and potentially leading to more and more extremism, or are you are you hopeful? Well, I mean, COVID has changed a lot of things. So, I mean, so let me back up. I guess Trump from the beginning began to try to reorient American trade policies, began imposing lots of openly protectionist measures, um, and then COVID kind of accelerated that. And layer on top of that, a certain kind of anti-Chinese sentiment that um, COVID has reinforced that was already pre-existing. 
Um, and so now you have a situation where there's a kind of broad consensus among the political class that something has to be done about China. Um, now, it's not clear what that will mean in terms of global trade because uh, the global trading system is highly dependent on Chinese participation. But as you know, you know, just in the last few months, you know, Trump has been um, ratcheting up the pressure on China. I mean, right now we're closing consulates and imposing greater and greater sanctions on Chinese tech firms, etc. Uh, there's greater confrontations with China in the in the South uh, China Sea, among other things. Um, and then COVID has caused a lot of people to think maybe we need to bring back a lot of production of things back to the United States. Now, I don't know how realistic that ambition is, particularly if it's more than for a few products that might be viewed as critical in a public health emergency. Um, but the general point that I, I made in 2016, I think about global economics remains the case today, that um, globalization is of a great benefit on, in the aggregate to the United States, particularly the United States. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot of losers from globalization. Um, the Trump response to that has been to try to engage in protectionism and in, 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 in a certain sense, kind of change the terms of trade in a way that's slanted to the benefit of the United States um, by imposing tariffs on trading partners. Now, the United States can get away with that to a certain extent because the United States has such a leading role in the global economy. No country, no company wants to be excluded from the U.S. market. So they are kind of willing to go along and there's very limited steps that they can take in the short term to retaliate against the U.S. The problem is, you know, over the medium and the long term, um, if the United States wants to take that approach to global trade, it's likely that it's going to uh, produce reactions, right? Um, you might see a rise of a different kind of trading block centered around China, for example, centered around Europe. Right, in which um, other countries enter into preferential trading relationships with each other uh, to protect themselves against the United States. You also see this going on with the role of the dollar. The United States has been very aggressive in using the, the, the global role of the dollar as the world's reserve currency to impose sanctions willy-nilly all over, all over the world, thereby effectively uh, telling the rest of the world that um, if you want to trade with us, you're going to have to adopt our sanctions regimes, right? Um, and so even places like the EU are trying to build out uh, payment systems that can bypass the dollar, right? So they can escape this kind of U.S. stranglehold on the global market, right? So there are costs. What I'm trying to say is there are costs involved to trying to either export Use US, use U.S. economic power to impose its will either in terms of geopolitics with the dollar or with tariffs in terms of trade um, in order to protect U.S. workers. There's a much easier route, which I would like to see uh, the United States adopt, um, and it's possible it could happen if there is a large enough Democratic victory in November, namely, um, we preserve 
the gains of the post-World War II liberalized trading system, but combine it with a much higher level of taxation that would allow the government to redistribute the gains from international trade and compensate the losers. What we've had going on in the United States since the Reagan Revolution is a double whammy to the working class in that globalization has undermined the security of their jobs on the one hand, and um, I guess conservative uh, pro-market policies domestically have destroyed the, uh, the, the welfare state internally, right? And so, yeah, you have cheap TVs, but education is unbelievably expensive. Healthcare is unbelievably expensive. Real estate is un 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 unbelievably expensive, right? So the most fundamental goods are outside of the reach of the average worker, even, even professionals, right? Where uh, consumption goods are really cheap and abundant, it, it feels like the, the current administration is doing, if you look at the a two by two of, of what you just laid out, right? Like less less fairness and less redistribution, more fairness, more redistribution, globalization versus nationalism. The, the current administration is going towards nationalism without fairness. And yeah. you want to go towards globalization, which is good for everybody in the long run, plus more redistribution and fairness. Yeah. The strategy of Trump and the Republican Party is to push back against globalization where the United States does not have a comparative advantage by using tariffs, right? And then imposing preferential trading terms on its trading partners where it does. And then instead of redistribu general redistributionist policy through, through something like the income tax, what they want to do is use tariffs to protect its friends, right? Yeah. So um, one thing that the tariff does is it allows the president, whoever he is, right, because imposing tariffs is, as we've seen, really a matter of executive discretion, right? He can impose tariffs on those industries that support him. Yeah. So it's a great way to essentially buy power domestically, right, because he's giving a signal, you know, if you support me, I'm going to protect you against foreign competition, right? So it's a really horrible way of running an economy if, you're, if you believe in democracy and you believe in fairness, right? But in the short term, at least, it could be very effective, right? Have, have these policies, do you think, um, gotten, are they still kind of contained in the Trump mind or have they kind of permeated to the, like you said, the kind of the whole entire class, uh, whether it's just the Republicans or even beyond and, and is that like a long-term risk even beyond Trump? Well, I think what Trump has done is that he's now made it acceptable to engage in these unilateral um, beggar-thy-neighbor trade policies, whereas for 30 years, no, it was off the, it was not a part of respectable conversation, right? But what he did was show, oh, you can do it and you can get away with it because the United States is so strong, Right. What I'm suggesting is that um, that's going to have negative consequences in the medium to long term for the United States because other countries can establish trading blocks to, to get enough you know, heft in the market to behave the same way. And internally, what it does is it allows the president 
to reward his enemies and punish his friends. Uh, excuse me, reward his friends and punish his enemies. Yeah. And that seems to be the theme, right? That seems to be a big theme of the uh, Trump presidency is, is that, uh, that, that exact same thing, plus normalizing just bad behavior. Yeah, and so what we would much prefer, and I would like to see Democrats embrace this openly, and I'm kind of little distressed that they're not, because they've kind of accepted protectionist logic and logic of bringing supply chain home, etc. What I would rather see is you know, pushing greater liberalization, um, pressuring China on human rights, and pushing forward a progressive tax agenda domestically uh, to help people who have been displaced by globalization, which is a serious problem. But the way to solve it is through redistribution, not through um, anti-competitive trade barriers, right? That just makes everybody worse off. And it gives too much discretion to the president to you know, reward friends, punish enemies. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it, do you do you think the um, I mean, where we are today uh, in terms of the landscape, economic landscape, uh, lends itself to the same kind of rhetoric that we saw in 2016 from Trump, which uh, I mean resonated, right? I mean, by a slim margin, but n nonetheless resonated, especially in the Rust Belt in the United States. Um, do you think that we're still in that same place or does sort of COVID, whether it's the response of the administration, which is obviously, a, a, you know, not necessarily a purely economic uh, conversation, but nonetheless has economic implications. Uh, does that sort of, if you, uh, if you excuse the word Trump, any conversations around the economy, et cetera? Well, I mean, the last question first, I definitely think COVID is going to, dominate any other discussions. But I think economically, we're more or less in the same position. I mean, there was, of course, some some sectors benefited from tariffs. So steel manufacturers have benefited from tariffs, but consumers of steel, including automakers, have suffered, right? I mean, that's just the way tariffs work. Right. And so it's, a, it's, it's always a question of, of, of picking winners and losers, and this is what was so awful about it, is that I think the calculus on Trump's part was always about re-election. And so the tariff strategy was guided in large part by how do I benefit groups in particular states that would reward me by voting for me in 2020, right? Right. Um, and, 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 and I think that was it. Sad to say, I think it was a kind of a winning strategy, but for COVID. I mean, not clear. I wasn't convinced that he was going to win anyway because so much of the country hates him. Mm -hmm. But what, what 2016 showed was you can have most of the country hate you and still win. Right. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting place to kind of pivot to talking about the Supreme Court, and I'll and I'll tell you kind of kind of what the bridge there is. So just in like in the ec economy. Um, you had people who maybe weren't sure about uh, Trump, whether it's the Lindsey Grahams or the people on the economic side. Sure, the the lower middle class has been not helped by Trump's policies, but if you look at the the upper class stock people who are invested in the stock market, and whatnot. If the if if what's that? 
the investor class. Investor class, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say we need to move away from language, <laughs> upper, lower. Yeah, they they maybe were on the fence, but they're loving these the, the stock market again. I've seen people who hate everything about Trump, but they're they're like, well, he did get the stock market up. And similar, and, and kind of what I'm getting at is the is the the parallel with the Christian community. I had friends in 2016, having gone to a Catholic school. Some of my friends are you know, and from college were extremely conservative. They came from Idaho, Montana, and came to, came to, came to Gonzaga, which was like a big city at the time for them, relatively speaking. But they, they were on the fence with Trump in 2016, but now they are adamant and convinced that he is good for Christians. Uh, and they say Obama was bad. This is their words, not mine. Obama was bad for Christians. His policies were, their words, anti-Christian, uh, we they say we've become we being Christians have become an, one of the most oppressed minorities in the country. And Trump, on the other hand, has put in policies that are pro-Christian, put in judges in the Supreme Court that are pro-Christian, and helping us move from you know Obama's anti-Christian policies. And we'll vote. Therefore, the proof is in the pudding. We may hate Trump, but we're going to vote for him because the 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 um, essentially the ends justify the means, or results speak for themselves. I mean, I think beyond anecdotally, I, I think what you what you're sharing with from your friends or conversations you've had is something we've seen in general from the evangelical community, which is, you know, we're going to uh, uh, either give give Trump a complete pass on any sort of moral improprieties, indiscretions, um, because of the fact that he is going to pack the judiciary with conservative judges, um, you know, so. Uh, it, well, conservative, especially on social issues, which seems to be kind of where the conversations begin and end, in, in, uh, at least from what you hear um, from a rhetorical sense from the evangelical base. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. That is a good bridge or, a, con or a, a transition into the conversation we wanted to have with Professor Fuggle, which was around the Supreme Court um, and, more, and more in general, I should say, and then in more particular to talk about the um, the um, 2020 um, docket that just in this session that just ended last month. Um, but I think Omar, I think you 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 also beyond or I I guess I, Professor Fuggle, um, did you have any sort of comments to make about maybe where you see the evangelicals being? Um, I mean, has Trump fulfilled the promises made with regards to the, the way the judiciary has sort of lined up? Well, I mean, let me just go back and just sure. a little more broadly about the question that Alma raised that, yeah, lots of people might hate Trump generally, but when it comes to the thing they most care about, the stock market, right, cultural issues, uh, they like him and so they're going to support him. Um, I mean, that, that may be true, right? Um, I think that that's a very, that reflects very poorly on the quality of American democracy if a, if, a, if a substantial segment of the population is going to support somebody solely based on the performance of the stock market, I mean, lots of things can affect the, the, the performance of the stock market that have nothing to do either with the quality of the economy or the quality of public life, right? I mean, I think everybody has come to the consensus that, you know, the stock market today is where it's at largely because of a flood of liquidity from the Federal Reserve. It has nothing to do with underlying fundamental performance of the economy, right? Now, secondly, if you are 
of a certain kind of conservative religious persuasion, um, you might believe that conceptions of civic equality are anti-religious because you're now being forced to accept um, as at least civic equals people whose beliefs, whose lifestyles, etc., you find loathsome, right? Um, now, I can understand why you could experience that as persecution, but, you know, as I think I've said before, you know, I've never heard of um, uh, Protestant evangelicals getting shot in the back as they're walking away from a policeman, right? It's just hard to imagine um, or equate uh, the legalization of same-sex marriage with persecution, religious persecution. We know what religious persecution looks like. Looks like. If you go to England, if you go to Oxford, you can see places where people were burned at the stake for being Protestant or something, or the reverse, or I, I can't say whatever. That is not happening in the United States, right? Uh, liberals are not burning Christians. They aren't throwing them in jail. They aren't punishing them. They aren't firing them from jobs because they hold the wrong theological doctrine. What's happened is that everybody is required to accept as civic equals people with, with whom they profoundly disagree, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's not oppression. That's just living with the, the reality of pluralism in American society, right? That's just not oppression. Um, you might feel it, experience it as a loss of privilege. That may be, that very well may be true, right? You can no longer take it for granted that everybody holds the same views that you have with respect to sexuality, theology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's true for everybody in society. It's not just true for you, right? Exactly. Um, so it's it's just not oppression, right? It's loss of privilege. Um, and now, as a from a practical perspective, I think evangelicals have a lot to thank Trump for. I mean, I think Trump did sort of come through with them, for them, at least in regard to judicial appointments. And so he has been very ideological. I mean, I don't think it's he, him personally, but he has allowed the most conservative elements within uh, the Republican Party to pick all his judges for him, right? Yeah. It's not that he has any convictions. The, the thing is, he has no convictions. So he's happy to do anything he needs to do as long as they agree to butter his bread, right? He doesn't care. That's right. So he, because he has no independent view about what the Constitution means, what it should be, what a, what a good society should look like, all he cares about is, you know, who's going to support me? I'll do whatever yeah. it takes. If they want me to support judges who will, you know, punish homosexuals, who will punish non-Christians, who will do this, do that, restore Christian privilege. I don't care. Sure. Let's go for it. Right? Um, so that's what makes Trump particularly dangerous, is that he's willing to strike any kind of bargain with any kind of constituency group that will keep him in power. So on one hand, you you do have, um, on one hand, you have a couple of the of, uh, of the justices, uh, Gorsuch, Roberts, in some cases, picking with the so-called uh, liberal side. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of going against the idea that things are split down the middle. On the other hand, I, 
having, you know, having not a legal background or anything like that, um, but just you know, your, your basic education in high school level and college level at um, about how things are supposed to be from the government, right? The judicial branch is supposed to be neutral and not partisan. So on one hand, you have some of the judges going to the other side in some cases. But on the other hand, I've never heard more than you hear today that there's a conservative block and a liberal block, right? Is that, and I think I heard you say it in the, in the last podcast that that really just started since the late Nixon years. Is that the new normal? Are we ever going to get back to a point where the, the nine justices aren't labeled as conservative or liberal? Um, is that even necessary or a good thing we should be targeting? Or is it, it just, is it just a dangerous new normal? Um, I think it really depends on the nature of the questions that are being presented before the, the judges, before the court. Um, the most controversial questions are those questions uh, for which there is really no clear answer in terms of the Constitution or the relevant statute. Um, you know, where, 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 where the Constitution or the statute does give a clear answer, you're going to get unanimity. Or for the most part, you're not going to even have a lawsuit, right? But lots of the issues that are so divisive today are a result of the fact that the relevant constitutional standard is just that, a standard. It's, it's vague, it's abstract, it requires um, interpretation in specific cases, right? And so in those circumstances, it's going to make a difference, the personal commitments of the, of the justice. There's just no way to avoid that. So as our society becomes more and more pluralist and as the, the, the sphere in which the government interferes becomes more and more, you know, becomes wider and wider and more pervasive, it's inevitable, I think, in my opinion, that you're going to have more and more divisive opinions regarding open textured provisions such as uh, free exercise, the Establishment Clause, due process, all, all of these things, these fundamental rights litigations, right? Where oftentimes you have um, two, you could say plausible interpretations of how it should come out, right? Um, and so there's no, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that there will be unanimity on those issues. Um, so we have to learn to deal with these kinds of divisions one way or the other. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, b before Omer jumped in with his question um, or um, yeah, going back to a comment or some of the comments you were making prior to that about evangelicals um, and, and, and the idea of a particular swath of the population feeling as though they are being uh, prosecuted, um, sorry, persecuted. <laughs> um, I was getting ahead of myself talking about the Supreme Court. Um, I, I, I think that conversation can no longer be limited just to, you know, Christian conservatives. And I think that, uh, which is where I think the, the conversation will also be especially meaningful to our Muslim listeners, which are probably the majority, which is, you know, you have these same conversations happening among like Muslim uh, circles. Uh, you've got, I'm beginning to see, uh, especially in Perhaps I was oblivious to it or less, it was less strident as it is now. 
during the Bush years, but you know, during the Trump years, what I am seeing is the kind of polarization even in the Muslim community, uh, especially with regards to these sort of social, these quote unquote social issues. Um, and, and, and like evangelicals have chosen um, abortion and, and, and I issues around, uh, you know, uh, contraception and, you know, uh, uh, pro-life and whatnot conversations. For Muslims, it's become the issue of uh, gay rights and transgender rights. And I think that, uh, you know, what we, one of the cases that I did want to discuss with you today was certainly the Bostock uh, opinion, and, and 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 we'll get to that. But I mean, I, I think the conversation that you were having, uh, Professor Rodwell, I, I think can be broadened and, and, and can be inclusive of the kind of conversations we're seeing in the Muslim community as well among so-called conservatives and liberals. Um, because I think whether, and, and I don't know if you want to necessarily characterize that as a matter of loss of privilege, like you said, with regards to sort of Christians feeling as though they're being persecuted. Um, I, I think it's a little bit different, right? With with Muslims sort of feeling as though, not necessarily a feeling of, uh, of a loss of privilege as much as it is um, kind of, okay, what is the sort of direction or the moral the moral compass of society and, 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 and sort of how do we deal with that, right? I mean, I think, so could you maybe broaden the conversation a little bit um, as you include the kind of conversations that you, I know, are a part of in the Muslim community? I mean, I'm just following yeah, you on yeah. Twitter and so on. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think there are, of course, these issues play themselves out in the Muslim community too. Mm -hmm. Muslims, obviously, I mean, I have to tell you guys, uh, Islam has very clear teachings on what appropriate sexual expression is and what inappropriate sexual expression is. Um, and so I think many people in our community have a lot of anxiety over what this kind of pluralism in the public sphere means for our community that wants to maintain a certain kind of moral coherence with respect to its internal sexual internal teachings about appropriate sexuality right? that's right and you know to a certain extent it's a lot easier to maintain the integrity of those doctrines religious doctrines if they are kindly widely widely held as default social norms by everybody even if those people don't have genuine religious motivations for upholding them Right, um, And so again, what I would tell Muslims is sort of what I would tell Christians is that we live in a, from a, in a, civic, from a civic perspective, a pluralist society. We don't all share the same uh, theological values, the same moral values, right? And we just have to learn to accept that. Um, we can't expect the government to use coercive power to discipline those people who have different conceptions of morality and truth. We just can't do that, right? Um, that's the price for being in a liberal democratic society. So yes, it makes it harder for us. We have to do a better job of teaching our children what we believe in, why we believe in it, as opposed to just relying on like visceral hatred, for example. Okay. This is actually, this conversation is really resonating, right? Because so I think I, a lot of yeah. Muslims who are opposed to these decisions, they want to be able to rely on visceral hatred of things like homosexuality, transgenderism, in order to avoid 
the difficult task of actual moral and ethical instruction of the community. Mm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it. And this is, like I said, this really resonates because I grew up in uh, Eastern Washington, Idaho border area where everybody was, most people were Christian. Um, the most, the most kind of, uh, Unifying. Yeah, no, I was going to say like the, the quote unquote bad kids at school in high school were like would be saints compared to, uh, you know, kids today. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, in the sense that the worst thing they were doing was maybe having a cigarette. I mean, there's not much going on in my high school. They're all good Christians. A lot of them were, you know, went to Mormon, uh, uh, Mormon uh, missions after high school. Many, many folks got married right after uh, college, like immediately the summer afterwards and so forth. Whereas living in the Silicon Valley, my kid, my kids, it's very different. Um, my kids have transgender uh, classmates and friends and so on and so forth, right? Just to give you kind of the, the difference. But like pr the professor said, it's, it's, it's harder as a parent to really, um, you know, inst instruct your kids as to uh, how you want them to live from an Islamic point of view. So the out the outsourced parenting doesn't work anymore, right? You have to really like own it. Uh, so I'd I'd love to get even a little more into this conversation, um, you know, because it's it's really interesting, definitely resonating for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's really the the, the issue is that we as a community. Um, I mean, I've I've long I've had long standing frustrations with um, religious education in the Muslim community. Um, I've always felt that it's more about identity formation um, than actual true education. When I mean true education, I mean giving young Muslims and adult Muslims the ability to engage with their religion as mature adults, mature thinkers, to be able to ask questions, to be able to learn, to be able to grow spiritually over time. I, you know, my, my great you know, my, my perception that most Islamic education is really about creating a certain kind of conformist behavior. And there's no real concern or no real attempt at genuine intellectual character formation. And so that's very problematic in a liberal pluralistic society because you just can't control people, right? Um, people have got to be able to affirm their own values, live live their values because they have um, a conviction, they have a connection to them, they understand why they're living the way they're living, they want to live the way they're living, right? And it's not as though I don't think we're incapable of doing that, I think we are, right? It's just that, you know, we haven't done so, and that should really be our priority. Instead of complaining about the kind of pluralism that exists in society, which, as I said, you're not going to be able to get rid of. What you, what you do have control over is your own education, I mean, your, your community's own educational resources, the, your, your own institutions, right? Um, and you can work on making those better. You can work on giving people a more mature um, Islamic education. You can give them the tools to be able to live as democratic citizens in a pluralistic society while being faithful Muslims, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, but that requires, I think, a, a really dramatic reorientation in the way we teach Islam 
to our kids and the way we teach it, even to adults, the way it's preached, um, sermons, etc. Um, you know, and so that's a that's a huge challenge, right? It is. So in that way, yeah. from that perspective, again, just like kind of Christian evangelicals, I think they kind of thought they were always entitled to rely on general culture to do the hard work for them. You can't do that, right? That's the whole point of... of, of Hindu uh, kind of theocratic, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, state instrument. So, 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 you know, I, I think that a lot of what you're saying resonates because I mean, the conversations that Indian Muslims are having is while you know, decrying the loss of secular democracy, right? Which is almost sort of contradictory to the conversation that we're having right now here in the United States, because it's almost as though we don't appreciate the frame that a, a liberal democracy or a secular democracy provides. Um. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't compare what's going on in the United States to India. I mean, again, India, I think, is much, 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 much worse. Of course, I didn't mean to. Right. It's not, you know, I, I don't know enough about Hinduism to con comment on a Hindu theocracy, but it looks more to me like just Hindu chauvinism mm -hmm. than anything else. Um, but again, the point, I, what I want to emphasize is, is it, I go back to again, is that in a liberal democracy, you aren't entitled to use the power of the state to punish those who live in a way different than yourself, mm -hmm. right? Simply because you think it's immoral. That that's just that's full stop. That you can't uh, you can't be advocating that, right? Mm -hmm. Even aside from the strategic foolishness of such a position, because we would be on the receiving end of it, you know, ninety nine percent of the time. Um, so what that means is that given that reality, we need to adopt a certain kind of Islamic education that is appropriate for Muslims as liberal citizens. And I think that's where our greatest failure is. It's a challenge. It's easier to wish for a time in which there was a kind of, you know, um, when there was actual persecution of, of these groups, um, but, you know, that would mean also that you are persecuted, first of all, and uh, second of all, I, I don't know to what extent the persecution of, of, of homosexuals, etc., is even consistent with most conceptions of Islamic concepts of privacy, etc., right? I mean, um, Whatever our religion teaches about these things, it certainly also teaches that we're not supposed to be going around trying to find out what people are doing in the privacy of their homes and punishing them, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it's not as though the status quo ante was particularly appealing to us either, and so we shouldn't be romanticizing it or thinking of it as some sort of loss that we should pine over. Yeah, interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that uh, we don't hear often about the the the, the value of, of privacy in the Islamic tradition. That's something we uh, you you just mentioned that we just don't hear often enough. So I appreciate that. Um, I, I think we've kind of teased it enough, but I mean, I think maybe kind of uh, shifting the conversation into not only the. Um, the uh, session, the Supreme Court session that just ended, but I think in particular, if we could begin with kind of talking about, because again, I think we've kind of teased it or skirted around the issue uh, without naming it, 
um, uh, uh, which is the kind of relevant conversations that the, that the court is having or, or that the court had uh, in the Bostock case. So um, it, I, I don't know if you wanted to, how you wanted to kind of get into the, the conversation in particular, Professor Fabo, but uh, maybe giving us a little bit of the background of the case and uh, what I found interesting, well, I, you know what, I'll let you do that and then I'll kind of tease some well, other parts of it that I wanted to also discuss with you. I think it's very hard for people to understand the importance of Title VII, which is the federal anti-discrimination law in employment, without understanding the basic background norm of U.S. employment law, which is what's known as at-will employment. That means that unless you have a written contract that provides specific grounds for termination, an uh, employer can fire you for any reason or no reason, right? Um, he can fire you because he's a White Sox fan and you're a Cubs fan or, or reverse. So Title VII um, is intervening against this broad, arbitrary, and despotic power that employers already have and just limits that with respect to a very small set of categories, so prohibited categories. And it's also important, sorry, Professor Fado, like if you could, like uh, Title VII is a part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yes. Yeah. So just, again, for some of the listeners who may not be aware. Yeah. Those so, of us who aren't, those of us who aren't lawyers. <laughs> so it prohibit, it, it preserves employers' rights to fire you at will with these, with these relatively minor exceptions, race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, sex, Right. Um, I think that's that's all of them. Now, as a general matter, uh, the Supreme Court has taken a relatively broad approach to what discrimination using these prohibited categories means, um, like a but-for test, right? So they say, you know, but for this category or this this factor, you wouldn't have received this treatment. Right? If that's true and that factor is one of those prohibited categories, then the plaintiff wins, even if arguably it was inconsistent with the purpose of the statute. So there are very famous cases uh, for to illustrate this point. So, for example, there was a case involving life insurance benefits mm -hmm. for female employees and male employees that were offered by a company. The company required female employees to pay more on a monthly basis than the men. So they brought a suit saying this was a discrimination in terms of employment based on sex. The company's defense was, well, women live longer, actuarially. So there's actually an expense here for women that's not there for men. So it shouldn't be a problem, right? In other words, it's, you know, Aristotle says, you know, equality is treating similarly situated things similarly. Men and women are situated differently with respect to ex life expectancy. So therefore, the life insurance, the difference reflects that they lose because the court says um, you're discriminating based on sex. It doesn't matter why you're doing so. There's a difference between the motive. The motive could be perfectly innocent. But nevertheless, the statute prohibits discrimination because of sex, right? And same thing when, you know, the whole idea of reverse discrimination. Everybody knows that it was passed to remedy anti-black discrimination. That doesn't mean that whites can't use it, and they did. 
doesn't mean white men can't use it. They do, right? Um, and so what's kind of ironic about the conservative hemming and hawing and you know hysteria about Bostock, right, is that they were perfectly happy to argue for a but-for theory of causation for Title VII when they could use it to argue that affirmative action discriminated against white men. But the moment the same theory of the statute was used to benefit um, homosexuals or transgendered persons, they said that was an illegitimate uh, reading of the statute. I think Justice Gorsuch's opinion is very clear, saying that if you use the but-for standard, which is what we always use, right, it's literally impossible for an employer to exclude a homosexual employee, LGBTQ employee, or a by uh, a transgender person without considering sex. And all the protest, all the presidents have told us that when sex is a but-for cause, then you violated the statute. So as a matter of statutory construction in light of the precedence of the court, I think it was an easy case and the right outcome. Right? Now, I think actually people's opposition to it was that they didn't want it to apply, right? They wanted to have the freedom to be able to deprive um, LGBTQ persons and transgender persons of the protections of Title VII in the workplace, which, again, seems to me completely inconsistent with the idea that we are living in a, a pluralist dem democratic society. Whatever my oppositions, my personal oppositions to these kinds of lifestyles, right? Who am I to say that you aren't even entitled to get a job? That I'm okay with the idea of you being completely shut out from the job market and you will leave you to starve to death. Right? Is it more is it more of a relief to you that Gorsuch um went in one direction or are you or are you still is it more of a frustration that well in this case in this case it's roberts roberts okay so yeah, is that roberts. more of a relief that a concert a, a, a republican appointed judge went that direction or is it still more of a frustration that the, cons the conservative judges aren't <laughs> going in that direction well i think um like i said i think it was an easy case in light of the court's precedent it's frustrating i think that three justices were willing to sort of entertain um, non-straightforward readings of the statute in order to uh, find for the employers in this case, right? Yeah, and, and I think that's an interesting... I think a little bit of nuance is maybe necessary, uh, Professor Fowl, just again for those listeners who either are not attorneys or, or, or are not as well-versed with regards to... Uh, you know, legal interpretation in general, or even the Supreme Court precedent, which is that uh, in general, um, the idea, especially espoused by conservative judges, but also resonates, I think, among liberals as well, which is the a, a sort of plain text reading of any statute. So, in this case, like you, like you've already mentioned, Title VII prohibits. Uh, the discrimination on the basis of certain characteristics, one of them being sex. Um, and then the argument that, and so uh, I think that's one point to make. And then number two, the argument that essentially um, uh, Gorsuch is making, when, or 
who wrote the uh, uh, majority opinion? Yeah, it was Gorsuch. The majority opinion is that um, is that well, uh, you can extend not necessarily extend, but that you you cannot look at discrimination on the basis of a person's sexual orientation or uh, biological gender um, without discriminating on the basis of sex as is defined in the statute, i.e. as is defined in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Yes. So, you know, strict textualism is kind of the idea that's, or, or, the, uh, or the methodology that is sort of yeah. thrown around. This is something all lawyers do, right? You, you apply the statute as it's written in its ordinary sense, unless the result is absurd, right? And so here the result clearly is not absurd. Just because the Congress in 1964 couldn't have imagined it to apply to people with same-sex orientations or transgendered persons does not mean that the statute doesn't cover it. In fact, you know, something that, you know, again, Gorsuch writes about towards the end of the majority opinion is, well, when it was imagined in 1964, uh, it, it was probably mostly imagined as something that would impact female employees. Uh, but we've, through the age, you know, through the decades, have applied the standard where it's been male employees who have faced discrimination on the basis of gender. Yes. Um, so it's not a leap too far, again, you know, and then sort of arguing then that, then to include the definition of sex uh, as defined in the statute to include transgendered individuals or include homosexuals is, again, within the purview, uh, or it's not necessarily uh, reimagining it uh, outside of how it was defined in 1964, necessarily. It's just, it's just, a, necessary it's just a necessary implication of the prohibition against sex discrimination. Because you can't apply a rule excluding homosexuals from employment without considering the sex of the applicant. And, and I think, yeah, and I think if you would, I mean, the, the opinion also gives a great sort of real world example, right? So you've got a model employee, Susan, who is wonderful, is great, and, you know, there's a party, and she introduces you to her wife, uh, you know, Sansa. Uh, Betsy, sorry. But, but yeah, Betsy. Yeah, Betsy. So uh, anyway, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and finish this sort of analogy that, again, or, or the real-world example that, you know, uh, Gorsuch just writes. Yeah, so if I then punish, uh, do we say her name is Susan? Because <laughs> well, let's take two employees, right? You've got Michael and you've got Susan, yeah. and both are attracted to women. Yeah, and so... Let's start there. Yeah, and so the exact same conduct being sort of romantically involved with a woman is okay for Michael but is a firing offense for Susan, right? Exactly. So it's, I'm discriminating based on her sex because if she were Michael instead of Susan, she would still have her job. So as the, as the non-lawyer uh, layman who, who is interested in constitutional law, but uh, maybe doesn't have the, the, the knowledge uh, as you guys do, where does freedom of religion for organizations come into play? Um, my understanding that there is a few rulings regard to that. I've heard the term Hobby Lobby as well, but I didn't know where that came in. Where does that come into play? I mean, rather than specifying it to organizations, maybe in general, where you have like Muslim employers or religion or, or employers who have a certain religious persuasion, right? Because that's what these cases are talking about. 
So not necessarily just within the uh, the purview of an organization, like a Muslim organization or a religious organization. I don't know if that's the question you were asking, Omar, but I just want to clarify that. Well, first of all, be clear, the postdoc is not a constitutional decision. Exactly. It's a decision. Title VII is a statute. It's not a constitution. It's not the constitution. And, and, Gorsuch, and Gorsuch pointed this out and says, look, if Congress doesn't like this result, they can amend Title VII to exclude protection for homosexuality and, and, and transgenderism. In fact, Americans with Disabilities Act does exclude transgenderism as a disability, right? I mean, that's very powerful evidence that it's part of, it is covered by Title VII, by the way. Mm. In any case, um, with respect to freedom of religion, that is protected by numerous different provisions in our federal system. First, there's the first amendment of the constitution where there's a you know free it's called the free exercise clause and the establishment clause second federal statutory law or before we get to federal statutory law then a doctrine that the that the courts sort of made up interpreting the constitution has something called the ministerial function or ministerial exemption is that um, federal law does not apply or thing like basically employment law, contract law, etc., does not apply to disputes internal to a religious organization involving the organization and a minister, right? Uh, basically, all employment decisions of religious organizations between the organization and the minister. I mean, this is kind of shocking. Uh, they're basically they have despotic power over their ministers. They can do whatever they want. Doesn't matter if there's a contract. Doesn't matter if there's racial discrimination. Doesn't matter if there's sexual discrimination. Nothing. It doesn't matter because they are immune from suit. Mm -hmm. The ministerial exemption essentially is immunity from suit. Okay, so that means if I'm an imam at a masjid, because I'm using that as a, that would be a clear example, and they fire me, and I say, well, you know, they're they're firing me in breach of my contract, I can't sue them even though I have a contract. To say nothing of Title VII doesn't apply, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act doesn't apply, etc. Religious organizations are given a certain kind of immunity from suit with respect to their hiring and firing decisions. And that's justified on the Establishment Clause grounds. The theory is that if the government can interfere with hiring decisions, they're basically appointing religious teachers. That's right. It, like uh, Entanglement. Yeah. And so what's interesting is that if I were to sue this religious organization, the religious organization doesn't even have to articulate a doctrinal reason for why they fired me. You know, it might one thing if I gave a khutbah in which I was saying things clearly contrary to Islam, right? And they fired me for it. Um, but I, they could just be firing because, I don't know, because um, I was rude to the president of the organization, for example. In their defense to the suit, all they have to say is we are, you know, the ministerial exception covers this, case dismissed. They don't have to say that Fadl was teaching erroneous doctrine or something like that. Right? They just say ministerial exception, done. So that's a very robust set of protections for religious organizations. Secondly, there's a federal statute called the uh, RIFRA. Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which means that laws of general applicability, 
something like Title VII, um, don't apply if it would result in a substantial um, injury to the right of free exercise in the case, uh, in, except in situations where there's a compelling government interest. So if I'm a Muslim employer, let's say, I'm not a religious organization, but let's just say I'm a religious employer. I'm, I'm I, I own a bunch of McDonald's, right? And I claim that I try to operate my McDonald's in a way that's really, you know, conforming with Islam, et cetera, et cetera. And in my belief, it would be a sin for me to hire a homosexual or an LGBTQ person because I would be aiding and abetting their sinful activity. And I refuse to do that. Okay. I could argue under RIFRA, right, that Title VII should not apply to me because it would represent a substantial burden on my freedom of freedom of religious exercise. Freedom of lawsuit. We don't know what what the court would say. I I don't think it would win. I think that would be a loser. But courts haven't ruled on that yet, right? So a lot of Muslims that I was sort of engaged with on Twitter were arguing that well now Muslim employers will be forced to hire you know, LGBTQ people, right, against, you know, that will violate the religious convictions. You know, and so here, there's there's a problem, again, living in, in, in a liberal, pluralistic society. Um, choices have to be made, balances have to be struck. So Title VII, for example, um, I think applies only to employers who have a certain number of employees, I think it's 15. Yeah. So if you are a, a small mom and shop small mom and pop halal butcher shop, Title VII is not going to apply to you. Right? On the other hand, if you are a franchisee magnate owning scores of fast food restaurants, then it probably will. Right? And so there's a question, you know, if you get to that scale, are you really being motivated by religion or are you profit pursuer? Right. Well, if you're a not to say that the two are necessarily uh, mutually exclusive. You know, wait here. If you're a profit pursuer, I think it's hard to escape the conclusion that the government has a legitimate interest in regulating how you are interacting in the labor market. Right? Um, but that's, that's yet, we have yet to know how that, that case will come out. Finally, right, then there's issues of state law. State law is also very important. Uh, states all have their own constitutional provisions. They have their own human rights provisions. Some states have human rights provisions that go much beyond Title VII. That's the Baker case, right, in Colorado. So in Colorado, they passed this human rights law that prohibited discrimination again on the basis of sexual orientation and applied it to all businesses, right? That goes much further than Title VII. And Colorado did not does not have a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, right? Obviously, that's much more problematic for religious business owners than a situation under Title VII, where, you know, with, if, you, if you're a small mom-and-pop business, right, sole proprietorship, you can, stop, you can probably still hire and fire in accordance with your own religious convictions without much fear, but in some states you can't, or there will be a conflict, right? So it's very hard to know in advance how these things will work out, right? But one thing I'm certain of is if religious groups insist on absolute freedom to um, impose their norms on society, right? Then I expect non-religious groups to insist on their right 
to erase religious freedom. Yeah. I think it's important for both groups to exercise restraint, recognize the reality of pluralism, and know and try to determine where the appropriate limits are for uh, the operation of religious norms and where the appropriate limits are for the um, for the uh, effectiveness of non-religious norms, of public norms. And yeah. I think this is the problem we're at today is that there's a lot of polarization resulting from the fact that we are not respecting the limits positively and negatively of both private authority, whether in the form of employer power, power of religious organizations um, on the one hand, or the limits of public power, right? I mean, I, I, I will say that I, I'm not comfortable with the idea that you have human rights legislation that covers every single business in the state, right? Because I do think there is a notion that we have to live and let live, and that goes both ways, and that unless they're the only baker in town, I don't see any harm arising out of going to the baker next door, right? And if, and if there's no harm in that, I'm not sure why there should be a lawsuit in the big case that goes all the way up to the Supreme Court about it. You know, I, I think I was being a little uh, Omer uh, when I put together the outline of what I wanted to talk about because I think I, I, I was perhaps a little bit ambitious in wanting to cover more than just postdoc. Um, you know, but I wanted to defer to you actually, Professor uh, Fuggle, if you felt that any any of the other cases that were handled or that were addressed by the Supreme Court in this year's docket um, uh, that or, or in the session that concluded. Um, because there, there is the abortion case, uh, which came down to a 5-4 uh, kind of decision, uh, and also around religious employment or employment in religious organizations. Uh, I think the Espinoza case, which also was, I think, 5-4. Do you feel that those are cases that have consequence for Muslim community uh, or, or Muslim employers, Muslim organizations? Um, and if so, maybe kind of sort of comment on it briefly, but I do want to kind of go back to this conversation, I think, that is happening around issues of, um, you know, sort of gay rights and transgender rights that the sort of Bostock case sort of brings to the fore, because we haven't even talked about, I think, what, what I found also kind of interesting was you had different sets of Muslim organizations file amicus briefs, uh, amicus, uh, you know, on, on behalf of either the employer or the employee in the Bostock case. They're sort of arguing both sides of it. And so, I mean, I'm all for healthy conversations within the Muslim community. And so, I've, I mean, if anything, I, I see that as a net positive, but I do want to sort of come back to that. So anyway, without being too ambitious and wanting to cover a lot more than we, than we probably have time for, maybe talk a little bit briefly, if you want to, about some of the other cases and their implications, and then kind of come back, and then we'll come back to Bostock. Yeah. I wish I could say I, I knew the entire docket of the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm not a Supreme Court scholar, unfortunately. No, no, no. I, I, I guess I was referring in, the, in particular to two cases. Cases and, and their their outcomes. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the Espinoza case. Um, I, I didn't think it was five four. I thought it was much more uh, uh, unanimous, closer. You know, much more lopsided than that. Um, and do you uh, mind summarizing I mean, it? Do you mind just summarizing yeah. it? Yeah. Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. Oh, uh, it was yeah. oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was confusing that. There was another case involving the ministerial exception. Um, yes. 
And that one, that that's because I thought because we were talking about that. Sorry, that's Guadalupe, and that yeah. was seven two. Yeah. So let me just first talk about that. That again, that reinforced the vitality of the ministerial exception. Mm-hmm. So this this incredible hysteria that what that swept Muslim Twitter after Bostock, and now Muslim Islamic centers and Muslim schools, etc., are going to be forced to hire, you know. Uh, uh, people with, you know, uh, LGBTQ people, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I think that shows that's complete nonsense, right? Complete nonsense. However, Muslim schools probably will face the same problem that other religious schools face. Namely, um, we have a certain demand for qualified teachers we might not be able to find a sufficient number of competent, observant Muslims to fill that demand. Now, what do we do? Do we either change our curriculum and only offer those things for which we have competent, observant Muslims to teach them? Or do we hire people who are not necessarily in a position to further the religious mission of the, of the organization to teach those classes? So, they're going to have to live with that decision. You have to be a responsible adult, so to speak, right? You have to live with your choices. If you are going to be hiring people because they are competent to teach a secular subject, whether it's physics or physical education, and they are non-Muslim, you are then not going to be able to say, oh, they're ministers, and so we're entitled to fire them or hire them without regard to civil rights legislation. No, you're not. You've got to accept the consequences of your choices, right? And I don't think, again, that's persecution. I just think that's a function of being a responsible member of society, right? You're you're still free. You can choose. Are we going to choose only to teach those things that we have competent, observant Muslims to provide? Or are we going to have, we're going to teach everything we think we should teach, even if that means hiring people who are not in a position to further the religious mission of the organization okay now with respect to the 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 montana case um unfortunately i don't know all the details of that case i only followed it sort of at a thirty thousand foot level yeah i think there's just much broader developments which i think are a little problematic from at least my understanding of the first amendment in the united states um it used to be the case that there were like these bright line rules that you can't give money to religion Right, that that would be a clear a, 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 a black law a black letter violation of the establishment clause. Um, starting in I think the '90s, there was a, a trend that said, well, if there's a kind of open-ended entitlement program in which the state is subsidizing a certain activity, it would be discriminatory if it excluded religious groups from receiving that money. Right, so this actually emerged out of my a, a case out of my university, University of Virginia, and it had to do with student activities funds. Mm. And so the university had a policy of excluding religious groups from getting student activity funds on the grounds that that would be a violation of the First Amendment. The court said no, it's not. Otherwise, it would be a violation of equal protection. They're just as much students as everybody else, so they're entitled to get money too but there were you know there were qualifications placed on it that it shouldn't be for funding 
you know, directly funding sectarian activity. I, I, I'm not an expert on all these things, right? But it's become more and more muddled. And with time, since the court has now had a conservative majority for much of the last 25 years, that's very sympathetic to religious claims. It's now allowing more and more programs to fund money to religious organizations. Now, in the Espinoza case, as my understanding, Montana had a law that prohibited funds to go to sectarian schools, but was available for other private schools. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and so apparently the court struck that down. Right? I haven't read the case. Um, it's a surprising result, in my opinion. Um, but I think it's of a piece of this tendency to allow the state to give a lot more direct aid to religious groups than used to be the case just 30 years ago, right? right? Again, I think this is a problem for us as Muslims because from, you know, the early 90s, what we've seen is the Supreme Court willing to tolerate more and more exemptions in favor of religious organizations from general law. But these exemptions don't happen in any kind of principled fashion. They're largely the result of political power. So, you know, it's not a coincidence that you see these evangelical megachurches in the suburbs. You know, you're not going to see a mega mosque in the suburbs, you know, that's like the size of a shopping mall, right? How do they get exceptions from the variant, you know, variances from the bylaws? Because they're politically powerful, yeah. right? And so again, there's this kind of knee-jerk reaction I find among some sectors of the Muslim community that think any kind of decision, you know, supporting religion is a win, right? And so they, they, they support it without much thought, without recognizing the benefits of, you know, an appropriate balance between the, the values of the Establishment Clause and the values of the Free Exercise Clause. That's the right. Because right now, just let me finish this thought. Sorry. Sorry. Right now... The free exercise clause is only valuable to the extent that you have political power, right? So politically powerful religions get to exercise a lot more religion than weak religious groups, right? And so um, I would say that, at least from a tactical perspective, Muslims have a lot more to gain from a strong establishment clause than a strong free exercise clause. Yeah. No, I think it's a... So, I'm sorry, could you repeat that last point? At least the way it's currently understood. The, 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 free, the free exercise clause is protected by the political branches, not the judiciary, right? Excellent point. Um, and thank you for that. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I do want to uh, kind of conclude. I, I know we're getting pressed on time. Um, like I said, I, you know, or what I mentioned before, we wanted to comment on some of the other cases. Going back to Bostock really briefly, um, I, what I found fascinating, again, is the kind of, you know, whether it was happening on Twitter or not is, or social media, maybe anecdotal, but, um, you know, at least in the lead up to the Supreme Court's opinion in Bostock, as I said, you had separate groups of Muslim organizations, religious organizations even, um, you know, sort of arguing from both sides, but, you know, are arguing either in, on the, at the behest of uh, the employee or the employer. Um, so, uh, including, uh, actually, um, 
a brief that was filed by a past guest of the show, Asma uh, Udin, you know. And so anyway, I, I, I just thought if you if you had a chance to kind of look over either the briefs and if you wanted to kind of maybe talk about what what where those conversations or where those arguments were uh, were coming from. Well, I didn't read all of them. Sure, of course. I read Esmas. Um, I mean, I read the brief that Muslim advocates signed on to. We, we didn't author it. We signed on to it. And I think that brief, I call it, you know, in my blog post, the Muslim lawyer's brief, that was just simply making the point that this is pretty a pretty straightforward application of the statute. And there's no reason not to apply the statute. That the arguments raised um, by the employers not to um, include, not to, to, to read Title VII, not to uh, protect uh, LGBTQ persons and transgender persons, if taken seriously, would also dilute protections for Muslims and other religious minorities. So that was our interest in uh, filing Amakai. Um, we did not take any position on what this meant for free exercise because it was not a free exercise case. Right. Unfortunately, one the one uh, Muslim brief, the one Amakai uh, brief that was filed uh, in support of the employer's claim, made two arguments. The first was that the statute properly read did not cover LGBTQ persons or transgender persons, and then it made this alternative argument that this would interfere in religious freedom of Muslims. Um, and I think and the, at least the first argument, I mean, if I'm, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that the argument that sort of Alito makes in the dissent anyway, right? With regards to the fact that, you know, in his opinion, at least, that, that it's consistent with that, meaning with the opinion that was filed, uh, you know, by certain Muslim organizations that in, in favor of the employers. Well, I didn't read Alito's dissent. I'm not sure what he said. I, I um, but basically it sounds like what you're saying is, he said that uh, the Congress that passed Title VII did not intend for it to cover these kinds of situations. That is correct. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's an interesting argument. But um, as I brought up, um, you know, Islamic jurisprudence has similar debates about what intent means, right? So I gave the example of, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a funny example, but this is how it would come up. Jurists would talk about the intent someone a speaker makes, uh, uh, the intent of an of a, of, a, of the maker of an oath. So suppose somebody says, um, "I will not. I, I I swear I will not wear any cloth garments today," right? And then he says, "If I do, then my wife is divorced or whatever." They like to do that in the Middle Ages. Um, <laughs> so then he puts on a garment made of linen or made of cloth, made of cotton. And, and so now his wife says, well, I'm divorced. You broke your oath. Mm. Like, no, no, no. I, when I said, I, I, I sw when I swore this oath, what I meant was linen cloth, not cotton cloth, right? And so the question arises, what, how do we understand this intent? Is an intent based on the plain sense of his language? Language. Or what subjectively was present in his mind? at the time he made the oath. So, um, you know, there's a debate about this in Muslim jurisprudence. Um, I talked about the fact that uh, a certain jurist that I have written about discussed this case and said the fact that, that an, pardon me? 
Qaddafi? I'm sorry, I, I haven't read it. Exactly, because I translated a work of his recently. That's right. And so he talks about this, and he says, when somebody makes an oath and says something like, I swear I will not wear cloths or, or, or garments today, right? And then says, when I said that, I had in mind flax garments. That intention is not sufficient to circumscribe the domain of the oath. All it does, that's what he called a confirmatory intention. There's no contradiction between the outward meaning of the oath and his subjective intent that I, what I had in mind was linen, not cotton. He said the only thing that's sufficient to restrict the general sense of a term is if, someone, if he were to have said, when I use the term cloth, I meant to exclude all cloth other than linen. Right? So it makes a distinction between an, uh, a, a, an intent, a subjective intent that's consistent with the apparent meaning and a subjective intent that is restrictive of the apparent meaning. Right? And so Gorsuch is essentially making the same, making the same argument here. He says the fact that it was not on the mind of the Congress is not, does not exclude these other things. It clearly covers it. And Alito is saying the only thing that should count as congressional intent is what was actually present in their mind. Now, if you think about that, that's a pretty dangerous position because 30 years after the passage of the statute or more right now, now right, 50 years uh, going on, every defendant could say, well, you know, this really wasn't contemplated by that, that Congress. And so therefore it shouldn't be covered. Right. To accept Alito's position would really create a huge amount of indeterminacy in, in the statute. And mm -hmm. it would really risk the kinds of protections that we as sort of relative latecomers <coughs> could be expected to get. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a great place to kind of transition into perhaps the the, uh, the the like the last thing we wanted you to sort of comment on, Professor Fuggle, before we let you go, is uh, and and thank you again for 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 uh, the enlightening conversation. And I, and I, you know, uh, I do want to say for 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 those listeners, uh, you know, we we've mentioned quite a bit. Uh, there's a lot of literature and material you can find online. I imagine that sort of gets into. Some of the weeds, as it were, at the weeds, as it were, with regards to some of these cases, in particular Bostock. Um, I know that all of the Amakai briefs are available online, and you can go and, and read those. Um, and then, as far as like the uh, the uh, the example that Dr. Fuddle cited from, um, you know, Muslim legal tradition, Qadhafi. Uh, you know, we've had uh, both yourself as well as Professor Jackson, sort of another person. Yeah. So as I was saying, uh, the uh, yeah, I, I think for for even for the listeners who want to kind of research and, and read up on Qaddafi and some of the points that Professor Fadl was making from Muslim tradition, I was you know saying that we've got you know we've had Dr. Jackson on this show and there's plenty of material that he's written as well as Professor Fadl uh, on Qaddafi and some of the issues that we have raised uh, and their precedent in in Muslim legal tradition as well. Um, but if, if I could, you know, kind of the point that you concluded with. Uh, Professor Fadl, with regards to the uh, where the argument that Alito is making uh, in Bostock kind of takes us, I think that's a good way to pivot into, I think, a general conversation on uh, the sort of future of the Supreme Court in general, right? We uh, are about, what, six months away from 
hopefully a peaceful transition of power or Trump's re-election uh, and, 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 and inauguration. Uh, nonetheless, uh, one of the things that weighs heavily uh, or a conversation that, uh, or certainly part of the calculus in the 2020 election has to be the, uh, the uh, future of the Supreme Court because not only of Ruth Bader, uh, Ruth Bader Gaines, uh, G G I'm sorry, Ginsburg's health, uh, her cancer is back. She, of, of course, being one of the sort of liberal, uh, among, among the liberal judges on the court. Um, and then there's, you know, I, I know some of the other uh, judges, uh, I, I, think I think Thomas has teased the possibility of retiring at some point. So where do you see, uh, again, kind of where the Supreme Court is headed and, and, and what the election, of course, would result in, uh, regardless of, you know, which party wins? Well, which I think is a more obvious answer. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it's going to matter a lot which party wins. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if Trump wins, I will say, you know, I, I don't hesitate to say this, it will be catastrophe for the American judicial system. I mean, wow. You, uh, and, and that's not, I don't think you're being hyperbolic. Uh, hyperbolic. I didn't get a chance to say this earlier, but I'll say it now. Please. We're, we're, we're excessively focused on, on issues involving the culture wars. Exactly. What we should really be worried about is cases of executive power. Thank you. And uh, right now, there is a kind of majority or near majority that's willing to give almost absolute deference to the president. Right. And, and thankfully, Roberts has shown some degree of rationality um, and has pulled a couple of rabbits out of the hat in order to push, push back against some of the most extreme executive measures of the president, but always on grounds that are um, procedural technicalities that could be fixed, like the recent DACA decision. Right. And so one of the most important reasons why we need to have not just a Democratic win in 2020, but a series of Democratic wins for the next 20 years is to establish a kind of jurisprudence about executive power that is going to cut it down to size. Right. If we have continuing Republican wins, we're going to be very much inviting executive dictatorship. Um, and I think that is the most terrifying um, trend that I see in the Supreme Court. And it will certainly continue if Trump wins. That's a fascinating point. And, and I mean, I don't want you to play armchair court, uh, or armchair psychiatrist or, or, or you know, psych, uh, psychologist here. But um, I, I think what you mentioned about Muslims sort of almost singularly focusing on uh, these sort of social issues, which again, you know, I mean, arguably, this is an, you know, this is something that even evangelicals fall into. Uh, uh, but uh, I think the consequences are far more, or I, I, the outcomes are far more consequential for Muslims as a religious minority, is with regards to executive, uh, the kind of encroachment that we've seen from the executive branch. And this isn't something that's, I think, limited to Trump. I mean, we, we certainly saw some encroachment, um, you know, uh, during the Bush years, certainly, but even during the Obama years. So is it necessarily something that you see as, as being limited to a kind of a right-left, you know, distinction? Or do we see kind of encroachment from the left as well with regards to giving the executive, you know, kind of un unfettered access or power to the executive branch or to the president in particular? Ever since the New Deal and the rise of the administrative state, yeah. the executive branch has been engaged in a project 
of continual centralization and aggrandizement of its own power. Wow. What's unique about Trump is his systematic disdain for the formal and substantive norms of the use of executive government. For example, something like half of the different cabinet positions today are not filled by a Senate-confirmed appointee, right? So he's mastered this technique of hiring um, permanent or temporary uh, cabinet officials that aren't subject to approval by the Senate, and by virtue of which he has virtual complete control over these cabinet officers. That's not the way the system is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. He is obliged to fill these uh, vacancies with somebody who gets the approval of the Senate for a reason. That's right. right? And so by intentionally subverting this system, by refusing to submit somebody to the Senate for confirmation, he's maximizing his personal power over the federal bureaucracy. Right? What he's done is shown that a president determined to subvert these institutional, the institutional uh, separation of powers can do so, right? And so it's a very dangerous set of precedents that he's done, right? Mm -hmm. So we need courts to police, we need courts that are willing to uh, police executive power much more aggressively. And Republican justices won't do that. They just don't. They have promoted a policy of executive supremacy for over a generation now. Right? With perhaps only, again, going back to a point you made, Robert showing some restraint. Yes. Yeah. But because he's done it on very technical procedural grounds, he hasn't given any substantive heft to those decisions, right? So we really need a series of, of, of democratic wins and democratic appointments to restore some kind of balance in our system. Yeah. Right? And are you optimistic uh, about the election? I hope so, but I was hopeful in 2016. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my yeah. great worry, frankly, is that Biden dies. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I was going to say what ha I was going to sort of throw you a hypothetical of what happens if you know, like Ginsburg dies. Well, <laughs> kind of limiting it to the SCOTUS because terrifying too. Right? Sorry, that's obviously terrifying. It is also e equally terrifying, but also interestingly enough, kind of brings us back to 2016 because, right, um, the appointment of Gorsuch at that point was sort of a, a contested issue because you had an you had uh, Garland. That's right. You had an you had an Obama appointee in Garland who basically the Republican Congress, led by Mitch McConnell, again. 2020 present um refusing to allow that uh to be moved forward because it was an election year yeah. so conceivably again you know in a, in a hypothetical where uh ginsburg passes or another uh, you know, anybody else right i mean life is no guarantee you know it could be prior it could be um uh, uh yeah anybody else on the on the left side of the of the supreme court passing and then what happens like do you see I assure you that Mitch McConnell will will, will bring a new replacement to the floor immediately. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's, as it was, I think, in 2016, it would be equally sort of, maybe not unprecedented, but it would certainly violate norms that have withstood, you know, withstood the test of time for over 80 plus years. In this case, can the House block it? Because the Democratic-controlled House? No, because it's all... No. The, 
you know, approval is always it's just mm. it's Senate. Yeah. Uh, Senate scary. confers. Yeah, the Senate confers and yeah, advises. Just if we're wrapping this up. I yes, mean, please. You know, at least for our Muslim listeners, a Muslim audience, um, I'm very concerned that we become embroiled in these culture wars because these culture wars are, are really a distraction to the main issues facing the United States. Always have been. In most cases, you know, for reasons we've already discussed, um, you know, there's a kind of temptation to side with the conservatives, but we must resist that because um, at all costs, because they are no, they are they are not our friends. Just to put it mildly, um, uh, and, and I think the best way to do so is by focusing on the really major challenges facing the country. Keep our eyes on those issues. Focus on them. Work on those issues. Do not get distracted by the culture wars. Right. That's sort of my message to the community. Right. Try. You know, work on internal reform, work on improving our schools, our mosques, our institutions, uh, do the best we can, and politically just work on the big issues. That's right. That's right. I mean, yeah, and you're right. I mean, I think the, 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 the sort of cultural issues um, do kind of distract us from the larger uh, things that are happening that have far more consequential uh, of, of an impact, uh, whether it's money in politics, whether it's uh, you know, the kind of uh, power grab we've seen from the executive branch that has sort of been, um, you know, uh, you know, unmitigated in the last few decades. I mean, those are some scary prospects, um, you know, regardless of the sort of cultural issues that somehow magically every four to eight years continue to be, you know, a part of the uh, of the, na the national conversation. And so we're kind of missing the forest for the trees there. Um Thank you so much, Professor Fogel. I really appreciate it, uh, taking the time out on a Friday morning to, to, to be with us. Um, uh, where can people kind of engage you? I know you, you, you've sort of mentioned conversations on Twitter. I, I've, been a, I've, I've uh, certainly uh, been a fly on the wall on some of those. Uh, but where can people engage you, find out more about you, your writings? Um, and I know you're, I think you're on sabbatical until the fall. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I all my... My, most of my papers are on my faculty website or links to it are available from my faculty website, the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. So if somebody just Googles my name, University of Toronto Faculty of Law, they'll get to the relevant page and they can find most of what I've written. I, I realize that some of my more, most recent writings are not on my, on my page yet, but I'll try to work on that, get that up there soon too. Excellent. And then uh, where can people engage you on social media? Uh, Twitter, my Twitter handle is called Shan Farah, S-H-A-N-F-A-R-A-A, -A -A, named after a pre-Islamic era poet, in case anybody's curious. Nice. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Fadil, on behalf of us, uh, me and Omar, on behalf of the show, on behalf of our listeners. Thank you so much, as always, for making it a really enlightening conversation. Uh, you know, we'll have you back on, hopefully, uh, before four years uh, are up uh, <laughs> next time. Inshallah, God willing. Small doses, <laughs> and, and and maybe maybe it'll be a, a, a healthier environment, political environment. Hopefully, Inshallah. Inshallah. Political okay. and, and healthier, uh, just health. Yeah. Uh, we won't be dealing with a national pandemic or, or a world pandemic. So, uh, okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, again for joining us. Uh, 
We'll catch you next time on an episode of uh, Diffuse Congruence. As always, uh, reach out to us on social media, um, on Facebook. You can email us at diffusecongruence at gmail.com. Thank you always for listening, and we look forward to engaging you on future episodes. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks, Professor. Assalamu alaikum.